Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is uh, Bill Domnarski, and we're doing a podcast today, which is October 5th, 2022, about a book, Citizen Justice, written by Margaret McKeon. McKeon. We got to step back. I I apologize. (laughs) Um, Who is a a judge in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, She's in San Diego talking to us today. And it's a wonderful book published by... Let me make sure I have this right. Published by Potomac Books, which is an imprint of the University of Nebraska Press, which I think is a very fine press. I've read several of their books. So here we are with Margaret. Is it okay if I call you Margaret? You're not going to force me to call you judge, are you? I will not. Especially since you have a wonderful item in your book where you have Douglas saying, just call me Bill, which I thought was wonderful. So So I'll say, just call me Margaret. Okay, we'll talk about what Just Call Me Bill meant for Douglas in his career, but we are talking about the uh, career, the life and career of William O. Douglas, Supreme Court Justice from, if I remember right, 1939 to 1975, and he left a legacy not just of uh, jurisprudence, but of environmental activism, and that's the subject of today, environmental activism in the shadow of his work for 36 years as a Supreme Court Justice. So I'm delighted to have you here, and I'm certain that we're going to have a good conversation about Douglas, who I fear the public is beginning to forget. Is that your sense? I think that's true. Uh, Certainly he was bigger than life during the time he was on the court, but I think with the passage of time, sometimes people forget. They may remember some of his opinions, but they may actually forget the name of the author of those opinions. So I think this was a good chance to remind people from an historical point of view who he was and where he fits in history. Well, is it possible to give us a thumbnail sketch of his career, both before the Supreme Court and then a uh, snapshot of what he did on the Supreme Court, what he's most known for? Sure. Well, as far as a, a snapshot, he was born in a small town in Eastern Washington State, went on to Whitman College, and then he went on to Columbia Law School. I think the most important thing there is he was definitely on the rise. Um, He was very smart. Some considered him a genius, but he didn't get what everybody thinks of as the brass ring when you graduate from law school, and that's a clerkship on the U.S. Supreme Court. But amazingly, he was on the U.S. Supreme Court just 14 years after he graduated. So in that time, what he did before he came to the Supreme Court, he tried um, law practice. He started at Crevasse, Wayne and Moore, and he didn't love it. So he thought, well, maybe I'll go west and do law practice out west. And actually with my former law firm, Perkins Coie, he was offered something like $600, but Crevasse said, no, come back to New York. We'll give you 5,000. So he did that, but he was bored. So then he became a law professor both at Columbia and Yale, and he's a little bored with that. And then he goes down to Washington 
under the auspices and kind of tutelage of Joe Kennedy, and he goes to the Securities and Exchange Commission project related to bankruptcy, and his specialty really was business and bankruptcy. He then becomes a commissioner on the SEC, and when um, Kennedy steps down as the chair, he becomes the chair. So at age 40, he's been the commissioner of the SEC, and then Roosevelt asks him to join the court. Did he have a relationship with Roosevelt? How did it happen that Roosevelt chose him? Well, there were a number of reasons. Uh, one, uh, Brandeis had suggested him, and he succeeded Brandeis on the court. Second, Roosevelt wanted a Westerner, and Douglas really represented the West, although his adult life was in the East. And finally, when he came to Washington, he had a fairly active social life, hobnobbing with various um, ambassadors and others, and he also played poker uh, with Roosevelt. So I think he became friends with him, and there are all the other reasons that he seemed to be a perfect nominee for the Supreme Court. And when he joined the court in 1939, who was on the court at that time that he had to uh, work with? Well, I, I think the main, you know, people he was working with, there was certainly Frankfurter, and they had both kind of come up in parallel universes to Washington, D.C. So uh, one might have thought they would be not only colleagues, but friends. And then, of course, we know there's a close relationship between Douglas and Justice Black later in their careers. But I would say those were the, you know, the main contemporaries that um, he's known for uh, dealing with so directly. And this environmentalism uh, or interest in, in environmentalism that he had, was that a product of his childhood or was it something that he acquired uh, later in his life? It's really a combination of those two. As a child, he had had polio. I realize that's been disputed, but he was a sickly kid. He was bullied. So he really communed with nature. He went out hiking five to six miles an hour. He has long legs. And he began this incredible relationship with nature and the wilderness, which he called his sanctuary. As time went on, um, he had a horse accident in um, the late 40s where he broke 23 ribs. And I think during that time was when he uh, wrote Of Men and Mountains, which is a soliloquy really to um, nature and the environment. And then later, what I think really sparked what some might say a dual career between being a justice and a citizen justice and being on the court um, was the CNO Canal in Washington, D.C. And that, of course, was a longtime canal that had been used for um, transporting goods. And there's a trail along there, the towpath. And the idea of the Park Service was to put a highway into there, a road. And the Washington Post editors thought that was a fantastic idea. So in 1954, Douglas read this editorial from the Washington Post that said, let's put in a road, then people can get there easier. And he was just visceral in his reaction. He wrote back as a justice to the Washington Post, challenged them to a hike down the canal, and said this would be a terrible mistake. 
this is a sanctuary, it's a place of beauty, and you would ruin it. And I think you should oppose it. So come hike with me. So they did, although they didn't make it 189 miles like him, they did change their mind. And he engineered it so at the end of the hike, there would be a lot of publicity. Uh, the Post changed its mind. The Park Service, with some lobbying and big push by him and a committee he formed, also changed their mind. And we now have what is known as the CNO Canal. It has its um, terminus in Georgetown. There's a big bust of Douglas there. And it is actually a National Historic Park now. Park Service says it's the only park that was walked into existence. So I think his whole background and then this catalyst of the CNO Canal really kicked him into gear as an active conservationist. Well, in, in telling the story, you kind of uh, quickly moved over what I think might be the most important idea, which is that he was uh, an activist, an advocate as a Supreme Court justice, not just as a citizen, but also as a Supreme Court justice. Now, did that uh, strike any people on the court or in Washington as something that he should not be doing? Well, it's interesting because I think yes. And uh, I might explain how I got the title Citizen Justice. Well, it's a it, wonderful title, by the way. Yeah, and it comes, um, it comes from uh, a case um, that... Uh, the Supreme Court had early on in which the question was, should federal judges pay income tax? And the Supreme Court made short work of that. And they said, no, they shouldn't pay. They should pay income tax because they are citizens like everybody else. So at that point, Douglas writes in a little notebook, and he's an incredible note taker, that he just voted himself first class citizenship and that he can do anything as a citizen that other citizens can do as long as it doesn't detract from his work on the Supreme Court. So that's how he saw himself and he justified it. And I might add, we're talking about the 1940s. So there were other justices who were involved in politics at the time, and maybe we'll get back to that because he definitely was involved in politics. But I think he saw himself truly as a citizen who could do all kinds of things. And once the conservation gene kicked in uh, front and center, he saw no problem with living that dual life. Much of that was not publicized because you have to remember that even though he did protest hikes all over America, that we didn't really have, we had no internet, we had no Freedom of Information Act, and there was a lot less transparency. But there were some rumblings around the court, particularly when he would hear some of the environmental cases. But for the first part, it was a little hard to have people in glass houses throw rocks because, well, some justices really had no political inclinations or involvement. Right at the beginning, right after he went on the court, Douglas is in play for the vice presidency with Roosevelt. So he was very interested in politics, even though he disclaimed, no, no, the court is a monastery. But it was a very special kind of monastery for him. Well, he must have really impressed people in Washington for them to be thinking of him as a political candidate. 
what was his personality like in public? Well, I think he had he had kind of in some ways a split personality. He could be incredibly charming, and he was charming, and he was well spoken, and he often wore this big hat, um, which is kind of denoted him as a Westerner. So he was an inside outsider to a degree. And as I say, he hobnobbed with ambassadors, with members of the cabinet and others in Washington. And in my view, he kind of became part and parcel of the social life. So he was, that's why he was considered as a possible candidate. Now he had backers, of course, it wasn't a, a, a one man effort by any means. At one point they even made up little pins that said Douglas for president. And you probably know, of course, the ultimate story is Douglas did not become the vice president nominee with Roosevelt. There was a story that said there was a piece of paper which was written um, Douglas Truman. And it's disputed, did it say Truman Douglas? Nobody <laughs> knows. But ultimately, Truman gets the nod. Time goes by and Douglas um, when Truman becomes president, Roosevelt dies, Truman becomes president. The rumor has it is that Truman then asked Douglas to be his vice president. And Douglas apparently said, why be number two to a number two? Now, so you're now at the end of his first decade on the court. And frankly, I think he's a little bored. Um, his first marriage was falling apart. That was on the rocks. He had this very consequential accident where he broke these 23 ribs in horse accident. So I think he was searching for what else he would do in addition to the court. And that was just a perfect Petri dish for him to embark on this life and world of, of conservation. Now, during that period, there were other justices who were playing in the political realm, certainly Frankfurter and others advising the president, um, some of them even being appointed to certain wartime boards and that sort of thing. But Douglas, in the end, decided he would stay on the court and not become vice president. He tinkered later, I think, some inkling that, well, maybe he'd be willing to be vice president to Lyndon Johnson. Of course, that never came to pass. And at one point, he even suggested he might stepped down from the court were he to be named Secretary of State. But that too mm -hmm. came to pass. So when, you know, when he was called in by Roosevelt, he was a little bit worried that he would be asked to be chairman of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, which mm -hmm. he thought would be deadly. And so <laughs> Douglas, I mean, the president says, no, I'm, I'm asking you to take a position that's a little like being in jail. To which point he thought, oh my God, I'm definitely going to be named chair of the FCC. And instead, the president says, I'd like you to be on the Supreme Court. And with that, he was very pleased about that. Well, it's, it's funny uh, he put it that way because another one of his justices, James Burns, actually described it that way, like being in jail. He, he could only take it for a year before he left. Um, so Douglas goes to the court and he brings with him some extraordinary gifts. Uh, there's a famous story, which actually I recently tracked down that confirmed that it's true that uh, William Brennan, colleague for many years, once said that he knew or had known only two geniuses in his lifetime. One was Richard Posner, 
former law clerk, and the other is William Douglas. So he brings this great, great mind, which he had almost to the very end, to the court. In addition, he had the gift of composition. Can you tell us about that a little bit? When you say composition, you're talking about his writing? Yes, that he could write quickly and write very, very well. Yeah, and of course, um, I agree with the genius point that he he was a genius. And that's why he sometimes told his colleagues, well, this job only takes three, four uh, days a week, to which they were not particularly um, cottoning to that, and that didn't engender a lot of popularity. And as far as writing, absolutely, he is a very fast writer. And he used to, you can still see in the his colleague and his files at the Library of Congress, you can see all of his yellow legal pads. And what he would do is sometimes during the argument or soon after, he would just sit down and zip out an opinion. And he, one of uh, the clerks, uh, later one of my colleagues said, however, sometimes those opinions were criticized as being airplane specials. And some people felt he wrote too fast. And as a result, was not a master of composition. So uh, I think that um, you know when you when you look back on his writing, some people did not see him as a particularly brilliant writer, but he was a passionate writer. He was definitely um, a passionate writer, and um, he was a quick writer. And he also he wrote from the heart. He wrote in ways that conveyed a message, not just in a dry legal manner, but in a way that connected to people. Well, it always struck me that he understood his audience, not law professors or even other judges, but the nation as a whole. So there's a, I don't want to say a distance from the law, but he understood that he had to explain things to the audience. Um, and that is one of the traits of a great writer, understanding your audience. And I think I think that's right. He he was not writing a law review article. He wasn't he'd been a law professor and he was not writing for law professors. Um, and he was writing for the public. And I think that's a very different audience. Um, of course, you always write for the parties and and you need to lay down what the, the principles are. But Douglas saw himself, I think, as a teacher for America. And whether he did it in his Supreme Court opinions, in his 50 books, or his many, many um, articles for popular magazines, he was a teacher and he had a message that he wanted um, people to understand. Well, you had a, a wonderful phrase in your book. You described that he ran a one-man lobby shop. All the while he's acting as the Supreme Court justice, turning out dozens of opinions uh, each year. Uh, he's running this one-man lobby shop. What was he lobbying about, and how did he do it? Because you had another wonderful sentence. You had a description, as a description of him as, a, as having remarkable political friendships. Right. So I'd like to understand more about those two things, the lobby shop and the friendships, and how he was able to get um, so much out of those two things. He had two overriding principles. Number one is that the wilderness is a sanctuary. It needs to be saved. And once lost, you can never regain it. And his other overriding theme I found was that the Constitution was meant um, to get the government off the backs of little people. 
So those two things you see both in his lobbying and in his Supreme Court opinions. Now on the lobby side, he really was singular in his lobbying. He was lobbying for wilderness, saving wilderness. He was lobbying for saving threatened places like the CNO Canal. And he was lobbying to protect what he thought was really a legacy for the future. So he was pretty singular in what he was lobbying for. Now it could manifest itself in different ways. Um, he could be lobbying against Kennecott Copper, for example, on a mountaintop in Washington state where he felt they were gonna destroy this whole area by their copper mine. Or he could be down in um, Kentucky at the Red River Gorge protesting against the Army Corps of Engineers and them putting in a dam, which would change the whole flow and structure and preservation of the gorge. So he he was not he was all over in geographically, which was amazing. So one might think, well, of course, the CNL Canal makes sense because he hikes there and he lives in Washington, but he's in Maine. He's in Kentucky. Uh, he's in Arkansas, he's in Texas, he's in Illinois, he's in Washington State, he's in California, he's in Colorado. So geographically, it was all over the country. Now, how did he do that? First of all, he often, if he finds a threatened place, then he would bring it to the public's attention through a protest, either a camp-in, a protest hike, uh, writing an article about it. Then he would form a committee, of which he was often the chair, and he would use grassroots individuals to really form a contingent to bring this to the public eye. And then he would go about um, lobbying people in the public sector. And because so much of what he was lobbying about related to federal land or federal land holdings in some way, federal government was his target. So who were his friends? Well. It's no surprise the uh, U.S. Congress, just a short little walk from the Supreme Court, he had very close relations there with the uh, members of Congress from Washington State um, who served the long terms, uh, Scoop Jackson, Henry Jackson, and um, Magnuson. They were very close to him, and he was forever down there talking with them. He was also incredible friends with um, Stuart Udall, eight years as the Secretary of Interior. So they were almost like partners in so many ways in what Udall was interested in in public lands and what Douglas was in. So that was another person. Now, he also went to the highest levels. Uh, Kennedy, uh, he was very good friends with Kennedy. President Kennedy and, and also Bobby Kennedy. In fact, President Kennedy asked him to take Bobby to Russia, which he did. And as far as President Kennedy, of course, he had a short tenure as president. But even during that time, Douglas was trying to get Kennedy to come out, for example, to the Sierra Club and be a keynote speaker. And he and Kennedy did see eye to eye on conservation issues. One of the things that made me laugh is, you know, the Kennedys were considered much more blue blood and uh, formal. And Douglas, 
he's somebody who liked to put on his cowboy boots and go riding or go hiking. And he said, one of the problems with President Kennedy, he says, Jack, your problem is you never slept on the ground. So mm -hmm. while he identified with Kennedy, he realized they were from different worlds. Johnson, um, very close to Johnson. And of course, Johnson signed the Wilderness Act of 1964, really, really major environmental legislation. Um, and he was close to um, Lady Bird uh, Johnson as well. He sometimes felt that Johnson was not a true conservationist. And yet, if you looked at Johnson's record, he had a very impressive record during his time as president. Douglas once wrote a book called Farewell to Texas, in which he was bemoaning what was happening environmentally down in Texas due to oil and other interests. Lady Bird Johnson did not like that title. In fact, neither of them did, but she particularly was offended by that title and even tried to get him to change it, which he didn't. But she felt that was um, really dis too dismissive of Texas. But when you take this combination of people that he knew, the presidents, secretaries of interior, members of Congress, both Senate and House, uh, he had a ready-made audience for when he wanted to go and lobby them about something. And that's a pretty uh, spectacular bench to be able to access. Mm -hmm. Well, talking about the strategies that he employed, uh, you, there's a wonderful phrase that he had, uh, come with me and see, as a way of describing what the problem right. is and how you go about fixing it. But then you had a wonderful phrase where you talk about how he had a strategy of lunches and letters. So you would have lots of lunches in D.C. and also send out lots of letters, very effective letters, which gets me back to what I think is just a crucial point about personality. It strikes me, and what I've myself written about Douglas, uh, research I've done, things I've written, in reading your book and some other books, is that he liked people, that he had respect for people. And I bring this up because I now have to bring up Felix Frankfurter. All right. You talked about the cowboy hat. Uh, Felix Frankfurter never could wear a cowboy hat, of course, um, but he also was an extraordinary elitist. And it strikes me that Douglas was Douglas was just the opposite. He was not an elitist at all. Is that a good way of describing it? I think that's true. I think he had very humble roots out in Washington State, and he never forgot that. Um, and he was, I think, a little cowed by his experience at Columbia going to this fancy law school where people had come from fancy colleges. He went to Whitman College, nothing to sneeze at, but it wasn't one of the Ivies. So there was always a little bit of being an outsider. And I think he always identified with the grassroots and, and with citizens um, and their concerns. And that's why I say he thought the Constitution was to, you know, get the government off the backs of little people. So he was, he was definitely not an elitist. When he comes to Washington and he gets baked into the environment there, he's, he has a lot of access, of course. And he had quite a coterie of, of friends and uh, colleagues there. But I don't think anyone would describe him as an elitist. He liked people in a, in a way um, 
that was not always consistent. So if he was on the trail and he meets up with some Boy Scouts, he can't wait to talk to them. He he tells Secretary of Agriculture uh, Freeman, come come with me and see. Come out to the forest and I'll show you. So he loved to take people out into the wilderness. He loved taking them to where I think he was most comfortable. But he also had a, he could be cantankerous as well. And certainly, um, as far as the Washington social scene, one would definitely say that his series or successive series of wives uh, didn't sit well with some of the socialites in Washington. I might say the conservationists didn't seem to bother. People he liked with, that didn't bother them at all. So he was always pushing against um, what was a, a fairly rigid social scene in Washington, D.C. And I think that's also why he hiked so much. He loved being out in the wilderness. That's where he felt most natural. Um, and he could Thanks. be, as you know, from your work uh, with him, he could be incredibly charming, persuasive. He could also be difficult. Well. Speaking of those uh, five wives, has anyone come up with a good explanation as to why he married five times? No, and it turns out it was only four. So see, oh, not, four. Not oh, I'm sorry. that many. Uh, well, I, I, I know. And one of the things I, I did not try to do a complete biography um, of Justice Douglas. I tried to focus on the environmental legacy and uh, what his work was there, both on and off the court. So I didn't try to psychoanalyze him. Um, I didn't go into his um, counselor's um, notes. Um, I didn't try to follow that line. But I think it's safe to say that as to his first wife, with whom he had the two children, you know, his view that had run its course. Why did he have a propensity to um, his second wife, uh, Mercedes? Following her, he married two women who were quite a bit younger than he was. But I think it's important to note that, you know, where he ended in his career, he was married to Kathy Douglas. And although she was only 23 and he was 67 when they married, she went on to finish college. She went to law school. Uh, she had um, an important fellowship at Georgetown Law School. And then she became, in her own right, an environmental lawyer and later philanthropist. So she really a uh, very impressive woman and uh, someone who understood him in terms of, you know, where his heart was. But that's why when you talk about Douglas, people will often say, oh, he had four wives or then Congressman Ford tried to impeach him. Mm -hmm. I say yes and yes, but that's not the history or the legacy that I think he leaves. Well, I was thinking about it only because of uh, thinking about it in terms of people who were close to him, because you write in your book about his relationships with uh, his law clerks. Yes. And some of them would, would uh, uh, die for him. Others didn't like him very much. And he didn't treat them very well sometimes, but I'm sure he treated them well other times. Uh, you know a lot about that relationship between judges and law clerks. What did you make of what you found out about his relationship with his law clerks? Well, from my perspective, that's not the kind of relationship I have or would want to have between 
a judge or a justice and the law clerks. Um, so uh, the times that he was so critical of them, I, I found he was overly harsh. And uh, one law clerk in particular that went on to be a very well-known professor, at one point he basically said, this is not the kind of work we want to turn in, or this is not emblematic of what we want. Or when he would fire his law clerks, you're fired. And then his assistant, judicial assistant would say, just come back tomorrow. He won't say a word and you're not really fired. So that is, I don't think, ideal under any circumstances, whether you're a judge or any other employer. But then he had those moments when he would have drinks with them after work. He would take them hiking uh, with him on the CNO Canal. And I went to what some people say may be the last big reunion of his clerks. Um, his clerks and, and uh, Kathy invited me in. You know, I really saw their uh, the amazing affection they also had for him and also how he served as a guiding light and a mentor to them over the years. He had he had a number of relationships were very close. Um, one of those was uh, with the uh, former Yale law professor Charles Reich, mm -hmm. Reich and Greening of America, he wrote. They were very close. And, and I interviewed um, Reich almost just prior to his death. He talked about the amazing relationship they had. Another group of individuals, as I mentioned, the conservationists were very close to him. But he was also close to two individuals out in Wyoming, Olas and Marty Murray. And that is actually how I even got into this idea of writing about Douglas. Uh, Olas Murray was the head of the Wilderness Society, and Marty Murray later was called the, the grandmother of conservation. But they worked with Douglas on several of these protest hikes and on one of his visits in Alaska to the Shinjek River, uh, where he then became a missionary for saving parts of Arctic Alaska. Mm -hmm. So those kind of relationships that you see that are, are very deep and meaningful show a side of Douglas that I find to be very attractive. He is uh, loyal. Uh, he's generous. Uh, whether he's sending people a case of whiskey or a lot of notes to Olas when Olas was in the hospital, it's just that Western way of being that repre he represents. And yet you can find many stories from law clerks or other colleagues, people in Washington where he was uh, a more of a cantankerous person for sure. Mm -hmm. And as you know, he and Justice Frankfurter um, turned out to be, I suppose some would say oil and water in their personalities with each other, even though they in an abstract sense might well have been, you know, compatriots on the court, but they didn't end up being that way. Is it true? I think I wrote this in the book I wrote that they uh, almost came to blows one time in a conference that uh, Douglas had to be restrained. I think it was Douglas who had to be restrained from actually hitting Frankfurter. That's how annoying Frankfurter could be. <laughs> well, I think Obviously, I have my favorites in the fight here. <laughs> sure. Well, I, you know, I've certainly read that. And I, I have also read that Frankfurter could go on at length in conference. And if you go back and read conference notes, which we now can on, on certain cases, 
Um, you'll often see that that Douglas is fairly short. Um, and cryptic and not necessarily either on conferences on whether to take a case, whether to accept cert or on post argument conferences. Sometimes he'll simply say. Affirm, I would affirm. And something he himself said is that often when he staked out a position, uh, he didn't necessarily try to get the other justices to always come along. He once said, the only soul I have to save is my own. So in some ways he was a solo operator on a number of issues. On the other hand, he certainly wrote a number of majority opinions and um, famous even in discussion today, Griswold v. Connecticut, you know, where he garnered the majority. But if he saw that his colleagues were not going his way, he didn't turn into the great persuader, the great collaborator. And so it might be um, no surprise that about 40% of his dissents, he was the only justice on that dissent. I remember doing a statistical analysis of his votes with, uh, in comparison with Frank, I mean, sorry, Black's votes. And they voted uh, similarly, almost all, not all the time, but they had a few disagreements about incorporation, that kind of thing. But they had a general, but the interesting there with Black, interesting thing there with Black is that Black and Frankfurter at the end of their lives kind of patched it up because they had been great adversaries. But Douglas and Frankfurter never even came close to patching up their differences, did they? They, they did not. Well, I think in a way, one of the keys to uh, understanding Douglas is that he was a great admirer, and I think friend, of Charles Evans Hughes. Hughes yeah. is at the end of his career. Douglas comes on the bench, and I think actually for the first two years, when Douglas is on the court and Hughes is the Chief Justice, I think Douglas voted with Hughes almost every time. And it's true, and he actually, to some degree, saw Hughes as a father figure. Now, Douglas's father died when he was quite young. He was six years old, and they had a very special relationship. So he had this capacity with the right personalities to form you know, very close relationships, as he did, for example, with Stuart Udall. They were both uh, friends, but then they were also um, advocates for many of the same issues, but they also were very much friends. And Douglas would, as I say, he would often do very kind things. And he's, he's an incredible letter writer, and luckily he's a pack rat. So when you go to his archives at Library of Congress, you can see everything from the Christmas cards to the get well notes to I left you a dollar and 25 cents because I used your long distance telephone, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And he also, for every major hike he took, he had a little black book that he wrote in. So you can see who was on the hike and then you can see his observations. Many of those observations then found their way into one of his books when he was writing about uh, the environment. If you were to ask folks today what they remember or what they associate with Douglas, it might be the four marriages, uh, it might be Griswold, the famous phrase of the penumbra that he talks about in that, is it that case, Griswold, that he talks about the penumbra? Yes. Um, I think he had used it before, or it certainly had been used before. He might have used it in the Skinner case, I'm, I don't recall exactly. But that idea that it's not explicitly found in the Constitution, 
we're pretty certain it's there. There's this um, radiated right out there that comes from the Constitution. Is that something he just kind of made up, or how closely did he see the freedoms that he was writing about, the civil liberties he was writing about in, say, Griswold, with the actual Constitution? Because one of the things I noticed, and I'm not going to ask you for any discussion of current figures, but I was struck, because I had never heard about this, that uh, Justice Thomas has a plaque in his office that says, please don't emanate in the penumbras. And it's uh, it, it's mocking uh, Douglas, it's criticizing Douglas, it's uh, belittling Douglas, it's doing all kinds of things. This idea of penumbra, can you give us any uh, anything to help us better understand what that's about? I think it goes back to Douglas's basic theme. But keep in mind, he wrote all kinds of books, Almanac of Liberty, all kinds of books about um, the Bill of Rights. He even wrote a wilderness Bill of Rights. So I think he saw the Constitution as an important document, but that individual rights and individual civil rights are really part and parcel of the Constitution. It's probably as simple as that. He did not find it any stretch to think that the Constitution would protect. And another way of thinking about it is, of course, he's remembered for some of these things. But if you uh, throw out the phrase, do trees have standing? Mm -hmm. then that's another thing that people remember Douglas for. That's the uh, paraphrase of his dissent in Sierra Club v. Morton, which was an important environmental standing case. And there, Douglas argued that really nature itself should have standing to bring a case. That, sure, you can say a hiker is damaged or affected uh, by some environmental action. But what about the river or the valley or the mountain? So he writes very mellifluously about that. And, and he's basically saying the same thing is that when we think about who should be able to come to court, who should be able to make a case, for example, for the environment, well, it's the valley or the river or the mountain that's being destroyed. Now, we do know that that precise characterization, which is sometimes called nature's rights, has not caught on much in the United States in our jurisprudence. But there are aspects of it, and you do see cases from time to time, and some cities and municipalities have adopted it, and a number of countries as well. So I don't think he was, he was dissenting for the future in Sierra Club v. Morton. And to me, that's that and Griswold v. Connecticut are the cases or the principles that he's probably most identified with. All right. I have a couple of uh, more things that I want to use uh, to uh, to wrap this up. One's an observation and one's a question. So my observation is all that I've read about Douglas, especially your book, your book is really a terrific book because it exposes a side of him. And it's not just the environmental activism side, it's the engagement with the world side that I like so much. That I'm left with the impression from your book and other things I've read, especially your book, that he thought the world was much bigger than just what crossed his desk at the Supreme Court. Is that a fair statement? That is a perfect summation of what he thought. I mean, I say citizen justice, he would almost be 
more of a of a world traveler. Here's someone who in the 50s is going to Iran, Tibet, China, Russia, um, India. So he was a world traveler and he didn't see the world as a world that was limited by his position. And he, I, I, there's no doubt that he leveraged his position to try to access particularly the, the natural world and to explain to people about it. But a number of his books relate to these foreign travels. So he had almost like a limitless mind. Anybody who could write 50 books plus all the opinions he was writing, he even wrote for Playboy because he thought that's what young men would read and he wanted them to know about various of, of his interests. So he was a genius. He definitely was a genius. He was a restless genius. And that's why he wasn't satisfied with, and I won't say just being a Supreme Court justice because that is a remarkable pinnacle in the legal profession. But for Douglas, it was a pinnacle of a legal profession but it's not one where he wanted to rest his legacy necessarily. All right, that's my observation. Now I have uh, a question. I finished your book last uh, last week, and as it turned out, last weekend, for the first time, I visited Hoover Dam. My uh, older daughter and I spent uh, much of a day there, and I was uh, stunned by it. I mean, I've seen photos, I've seen documentaries, but I, in person, was just stunned. Now. Having just read your book, I had to be thinking to myself, and I did, ask the question of, well, what did Douglas make of this? What would he have thought? Was this progress on the one hand and then the taming of a river on the other? So it invokes his, he was a man who believed in progress, and he also obviously believed in the conservation ethic. Uh, so what did he think of the Hoover Dam? Did you ever run across anything that told you what he thought about the Hoover Dam? Well, he thought about the Hoover Dam like he thought about all dams. On this issue, he split with Roosevelt. Roosevelt obviously had a tough situation coming out of the Depression, um, out of uh, the problems with the Dust Bowl, and he was trying to provide both water and flood control in the West. Douglas condemned dams. And so in some ways, he was a canary in the coal mine because now there are a number of dams that are coming down and being uh, taken down for environmental reasons. So not only on dams, but pollution and pesticides, he was ahead of his time. He was a canary in the coal mine. And I think his writing and his advocacy did have an impact in those areas. But if he could be here to answer your question, he would be quite clear that uh, he was critical of dams because of their impact on the environment. And in that, he was obviously perhaps too absolutist in not acknowledging the both uh, social, agricultural, and other positive impacts of the dam. But he was very clear with Roosevelt, we part ways on the dam. Okay. Now, I have two quick, two quick things to ask you about, and then we'll be done. The first is that you just had something of a career move. You became a senior judge of the Ninth Circuit. Tell me about that. What prompted that? Well, what prompted that is that I, I spent about 25 years uh, practicing law, and I've been on the court almost 25 years. So it seemed a nice bookend. And the beauty of going senior on the federal court is that you continue to take cases 
you continue to work with your law clerks. And so it also opens a seat so another judge can come and also have hopefully an interesting career. So I don't feel like I'm leaving the judiciary in any, by any means. I intend to take uh, a very substantial load case-wise and as I always have. And I hope also that um, it might give me a little more time to be out on the trail and maybe write another book. Well, I, I know, I think five circuit judges who took senior status and they didn't work any less afterwards. They worked that's, just as hard. That's All true. Right, but the last thing I want to ask you about is the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, of which you are a member. Tell me about that because that is an extraordinarily prestigious organization. Tell me about it and how you became a member. But the um, academy, I think, is the oldest learned society in the United States and um, it's headquartered in Boston. And it brings together people who have achieved in a, in a variety of areas, not just in the social sciences or the law, but also the physical sciences, um, public policy, a whole range. How one becomes a member of the academy is a little bit of a black box mystery to me um, because the way I learned about it was I got an email um, during COVID that I had been elected to the American Academy. And um, it's more familiar, I think, among academics. Um, there are not that many judges in, uh, and lawyers in the academy. And I was fortunate just this last month to be formally inducted. But because of COVID, we had been delayed. So it, I didn't realize what a thrill it would be to go there, to go to the um, Academy House and to see letters to the Academy um, from individuals like Charles Darwin, uh, Martin Luther King, um, signatures by John Adams in the big book that they have you sign when you become a member. So the Academy is, is not only this collection of individuals, but it also has a number of important projects. For example, it's now working on a project on democracy, uh, which of course is um, an issue that is so prominent in the discussion and rhetoric in the United States and abroad. So it also undertakes uh, various um, academic and public policy issues uh, that various of its members participate in. The um, it's so varied, however, that, for example, one of the members of our class was Joan Baez, which I thought was great. Um, so I liked the idea that um, I would be there among many of these well-respected scholars, but that they also brought in, uh, whether it was Yo-Yo Ma or Joan Baez, everything from folk songs to classical music. So it was a surprise to me and it was a great honor. Well, it's a great accomplishment and I congratulate you on that. Um, all right. So we spent uh, probably more time than the editors of the uh, podcast like, but I think it's a great podcast that we've had. We learned a lot about Douglas. We learned a lot about judging. We learned a lot about citizenship. So I really appreciate, uh, Margaret, you taking all the time that you have today to talk to me and our audience. Um, about your book, and it really is a terrific book, and I recommend it. I don't recommend every book um, that I've done a podcast with, almost everyone, but this is a really terrific book. He jumps off the page is what happens in this book. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing these podcasts.